0: Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker.
1: Many schools are closed. Restaurants are operating at minimum capacity. Social distancing, masks, all of these are terms that unfortunately we've come to know over the last six months or so. We're having a little deadly bug make a huge difference in our lives. as a matter of fact, in the world. What have we learned about all of this? We're going to try to put it into some sort of perspective. We're also going to take a look at how this virus has been distributed across our country and how a small number of counties have actually been the ones with the greatest problems and the greatest deaths. And we're going to talk about all of these issues. My guest is Doug Badger who is a visiting fellow in domestic policy studies with the Heritage Foundation. And Doug, you all have recently done a study on the distribution of this this menace. Uh, Tell us what it found.
0: Yeah, I think one of the good things, if there's any good thing about the, the pandemic is that it is different from what people talk about a century ago, the Spanish flu, which, which affected young people disproportionately. This particular disease, as serious and deadly as it is, um, is really age-related and geographically related. When I say age-related, I, I, I mean that the risk of serious illness and death rises exponentially with age so that older people particularly those in nursing homes are at most serious risk they are the most vulnerable and they are the people that public policy should focus on
1: and when these said, are the people that often have other conditions that makes them more vulnerable to this virus as i understand it that's correct it's it's a combination
0: of things and the and the experts will tell you that it's it's difficult to sort out which is which is at the Underlying medical condition or age, but age is really the best predictor of who will uh, get the illness seriously and particularly most at risk of, of dying from the disease. Okay. And of those older people, the most uh, people most at risk are those who are in uh, nursing homes and assisted living facilities.
1: Yeah. And okay, so we, we know then that we've got a vulnerable population here, but. W- Actually, it seems to me like we've applied the concern about the virus to the entire population and not to our most vulnerable. Is that a fair statement? It it is a fair
0: description of the policies that have um, pretty much dominated our response to the the pandemic. And so we're familiar with widespread lockdowns where Um, schools are closed almost nationwide for extended periods of time, restaurants and other public places are closed, concerts don't happen anymore, sporting events without spectators. All of this proceeds generally on the notion that we're all equally at risk of serious illness and death from COVID-19. It's more accurate to say while we may roughly be at, at, at the same risk of of actually infection. Uh, that's not true of hospitalizations. It's not true of deaths. According right. to the Centers for the
1: impact on us is, is different if you're older. The older population is the one that's, that's really uh, affected here. But your study w- showed some interesting things. We have elderly population all over the country, and yet I think your study found that only about 1% of the counties in our country, and they have the um, vast majority of the deaths. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's 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 really, I guess, what we would call the Acela corridor, right? Boston to, uh, to Washington uh, has just far and away... Uh, a higher rate of death. We're talking about deaths per million population, not just in raw numbers. And, and really New York City and the surrounding uh, counties remains the, um, the epicenter in terms of deaths per million population. Uh, when you look at COVID-19 deaths, uh, New York is um, quadruple the number of deaths per million as the rest of the country. It's more than twice its nearest rival, which is Detroit. And the cities we heard about over the summer, Miami and, and Houston and so forth, um, those cities, New York is is a four, three, four, and, and even five times the, the rate of deaths per million population of cities where the infection spread
1: this summer. Now, that that's a very interesting thing and a lot of what I've read leads me to believe that the the nursing home deaths in New York City were really what drove up the number of deaths Uh, and some of the policies that were instituted by Governor Cuomo uh, seem to have at least people are saying and I I don't know if it's valid or not but that his putting um, the people who were infected into nursing homes really made a significant difference. Is that part of your study? Did you focus on that at all, how it impacted the numbers? We,
0: you know, we didn't go into that for a number of reasons. I mean, First, um, in New York, actually, if you contract the disease in a nursing home but die in a hospital, they don't record that as a nursing home death.
1: I see
0: to get a real sense of that. I think Governor Cuomo made the
1: decision that he thought was
0: best at the time. Of
1: course he did. I would agree with that. Uh, No one is going to make a decision that they think is going to be bad for their people. And and unfortunately, it turned out to be probably a a misstep. But but aside from that, what do we learn from this grouping of statistics that um, seems to be, uh, to me, that's extremely significant. Are there conclusions that can be drawn from this, well, this rather lopsided distribution of the deaths?
0: There, there, there are, and, and I'm happy to say that there has actually been some progress in this regard. Uh, Phil Kirpin of American Commitment, it keeps a, a, an update of, of nursing home related deaths. And when we were looking at, uh, for example, in June, of COVID-19 deaths were nursing home related, according to his tallies. By the time we got into August and September, that had dropped to 35% of COVID-19 deaths, which tells us that we've gotten a little bit smarter in figuring out how to protect people who are most vulnerable. Obviously widespread lockdown policies don't affect people in nursing homes. They're already in some sense on lockdown. And as a result, I think policymakers maybe weren't as aware of the vulnerabilities there that they now are. But there's evidence from the fact that as I said, we've gone from 60% of deaths being nursing nursing home related in June to 35% in August and September, tells me that we're we're, we're making progress in protecting the most vulnerable.
1: Thanks, Doug. Let's just take a brief pause here to let our vi- our listeners know that they're tuned into of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Doug Badger. He's a visiting fellow in domestic policy studies with the Heritage Foundation, and we're talking about a recent study which um, was rather enlightening in t- terms of. Where the COVID-19 deaths have occurred. Now, aside from the nursing homes, is is part of the 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 seem uh, heavy impact on the eastern part of our country related to what else? Is there any way of defining that? And and what does this study mean for us? In well, let me let you answer that question. Then I'll follow up.
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, there are a number of theories about this in terms of, um, particularly in high density population areas, being more vulnerable uh, to uh, to this disease, more vulnerable to uh, catching it. Uh, the New York Times has done a study of what happened in New York City. Particularly, they estimate that about four hundred fifty thousand residents, people who are a little more affluent, maybe they have second homes and so forth, actually left the city uh, between March 1 and and May 1st. But those who were left behind were disproportionately members of minority groups, often living in multi-family units uh, in in, uh, multi-generational households. So you have an elderly person living in the same household as, as, as younger people, um, using public transportation, for example, which the subways and uh, so forth remained open. And all of those things may have contributed to a higher rate of infection and, and disease uh, in New York and other areas in, in the Northeast. The other thing I think that has been um, unfortunate is uh, that early on in the pandemic, the, the, the Centers for Disease Control developed a test for the contagion that turned out to be defective. The Food and Drug Administration wouldn't allow other uh, uh, private sources to get their tests onto the market, and the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services imposed certain federal uh, licensing requirements uh, on, on clinical laboratories, all of which during those critical months of February and early March, really blinded people to the extent of the person-to-person transmission that was going on. so uh, Governor Cuomo a Mayor de Blasio and others uh, really didn't know uh, right. how big the community spread had occurred and and as a result you know you get behind the, the curve on on something as contagious as this and, and it's going to have devastating consequences all of that, probably contributed to uh, the fact that the northeast and particularly new york city have experienced a much higher death rate than the rest of the country
1: yeah well I, i'm sure these are lessons that we have learned and we hope we never have to apply them somewhere but it certainly is things there certainly are things that we need to be aware of and to keep in mind if something like this ever happens again um okay so so moving forward what does this mean in terms of us getting our country back to normal? I mean, I, it seems to me like an awful lot of schools are still not open. Um, I, I I don't know where where we are in terms of, of making people more comfortable with the fact that uh, in their particular age group, it's okay to go out. Where do you see this going, Doug?
0: Well, you, you hit exactly on the point. I mean, we we focus on public policy, like, do we lock down? Do we uh, relax the lockdown restrictions? Do we reinstate them? And it's all focused on that policy. What really is at the heart of this is decisions that people make. Uh, Austin Goolsbee, uh, who was uh, uh, headed up uh, President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors and one of his colleagues at the University of Chicago, uh, published a paper called Fear, Lockdowns, uh, and the Consequences. And, and what he found is that where lockdown orders were in place, social interactions, and, and he measured what he measured was using cell phone um, uh, mobility data, uh, people going into retail establishments, restaurants, shops, and other things, He saw a 60 percentage point decline in that activity between mid-March and and mid-April. But what he found was that only about seven percentage points of that decline were due to government lockdown orders. What happened was people, particularly in counties that were reporting a high number of COVID-19 related deaths, people in those counties began to become fearful and they restricted their activities before lockdown orders were, were put in place and even after they were relaxed. Think so about that- that was
1: self-imposed by the people because of their fear.
0: Self-imposed by the people in fear and there have been subsequent studies that have corroborated that. Think about in DC where yes, there are restrictions but people are free to go back to their offices. And they're not doing it either, you know, they're, they're being given permission to continue to work remotely. Uh, in some cases, firms, uh, law firms and others are saying, we don't want you in the building. Don't come here, continue to work remotely. There, there's, there's fear of returning. There's fear of liability uh, if, that if I let my workers come back and somebody gets sick, could I be sued for that? Um, And so the issue we need to address more than anything is people's discomfort with sending their children to school, uh, going out uh, uh, to restaurants, returning to uh, what we call normal activity. And the answer to that may actually lie in new tests that are becoming available.
1: Okay, so what are these testings that you're talking about? You're testing to see if a person has it right now. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah,
0: the issue are tests that yield instant results, and we're starting to see some progress. The Food and Drug Administration approved one. Uh, President Trump announced that they were shipping a bunch of these out to, to states to distribute to schools and, um, and to... Um, Uh, universities and and nursing homes and so forth. Vice President Biden, if you watch one of his ads on COVID-19, the first point he makes are are rapid, the need for rapid tests. So we're starting to move in that direction. However, there's one little rub uh, that maybe I would hope the Food and Drug Administration would take a look at.
1: Okay, before you go into that, let's just take a brief pause here. Um, and let our listeners know they're talk they're listening to of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. I'm glad to have you with us. Um, uh, my guest is Doug. Badger. He's a visiting fellow in domestic policy studies with the Heritage Foundation, and we're talking about some rather interesting studies and distribution in our population of the COVID-19 epidemic. I know we're all sick of hearing of COVID-19, but I think he's got some important things to say. So would you follow up, Doug? I'm sorry to have interrupted you.
0: So what we're looking at, the challenge we face in returning to what we call normal, so businesses can begin to uh, have their customers return and and sports teams can have uh, people at the stadium, parents are sending their children to school, is to begin to screen people for the infection. And there are tests that have been developed. There are some rapid tests that that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration that are beginning to be distributed. That's a great start, but we need a lot of these. We need to be able to screen people, and particularly school kids, maybe a couple of times a week, so that we can identify quickly who may have the infection and make sure they don't spread it to others. With the typical test that we've been using, you go to a place, you take a nasal swab, um, HHS says about 93% of those get back within three days, about 98% within five, Well, that's three to five days where you're at risk of infecting other people. Sure. Even if you confine yourself to the home, you're at risk of of infecting your wife or your husband or or somebody else who who lives in your household. One study in New York State found that 66% of infections uh, that led to hospitalizations were acquired in the home. So what we need is a very quick way to find out if you're, if you're infected and there are paper strip tests that have been developed that allow you to be screened, you, you it's a strip you put on your tongue and it tells you within a few minutes whether you're positive or negative. These kinds of tests, if approved by the FDA, could be widely distributed and could give people the confidence, again, to go back if you knew that everyone that was going into the local movie theater was being screened for the disease before they go in, um, you'd be more
1: likely uh,
0: to go out to the movies.
1: Amen to that. Uh, Yeah, now, so this this is a test, it's almost instantaneous within a couple of minutes, you've got a result, so if, but, it seems to me that there are probably some real problems here one is the distribution of it and two is Well, of course first the production the distribution and then the cost. How do we address those?
0: Well, the 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 costs of these paper strips according to um, uh, the folks who who have developed them and there is actually a website your listeners can go to called rapidtests.org. dot org uh, they cost about a dollar to produce Um, And they estimate that a K through eight testing program that tested kids twice a week would cost about $8 billion. And that includes one to $2 billion for developing the manufacturing capacity to turn these out in, in, in sufficient volume. To give you an idea, Congress approved 50 billion for tests back in March and a bill that uh, Democratic leaders, House Democratic leaders recently introduced, would do another 50 billion on top of that for the uh, the, the the typical tests, the nasal swab tests that have been used. So eight billion dollars could go a long way. The problem is so far, the FDA is not approving these. And the reason for that, and this is where it gets beyond my expertise to tell anybody or express even an informed opinion on who's right the fda is looking for clinical precision they want to know that this test absolutely if it diagnoses you with it or 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 you know s- suggests that you may have the infection is right and at, at a very very high degree that would be the sort of thing that your doctor would want to know before they decide what to do these tests are 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 not as accurate. They're, they're picking up from the saliva. So you've got to have the, the virus present there already. Uh, and so it, it, it might not be as accurate. It is not as precise as the clinical test. But what we're looking for here is not that kind of precision. If you screen as positive, go in and get, get a, a nasal swab test and confirm the diagnosis. We're looking for making you comfortable
1: uh, to go
0: back out into right. the To get our
1: world working again. Absolutely, Doug. You're, that, yes, and my goodness. You know, I would feel more comfortable going to a movie if I thought that people there had been tested and that this test had a rather high level of, of uh, success. That would make me feel a lot better.
0: And that's the difference. The, the The difference here is in the the FDA standard, in these circumstances that we find ourselves in, uh, do they want to insist on that clinical precision or 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 do they want to say, look, what we're looking to do is a test that screens for uh, infectiousness? So it's it's a tough call.
1: yeah, But, it sure but here's
0: is. what we're we're looking at, as you know, I mean, Um, We still have in D.C. and a lot of places, uh, pretty much everywhere in the country, a sharp reduction in public uh, activity and in in social interaction, economic interaction. And the experts are telling us we won't have a uh, vaccine broadly distributed until late spring or early summer of 2021, well, yeah, that, estimate, daunting, that
1: estimate changes, and and I don't think anybody has a good enough crystal ball to figure out when that's going to happen. Look, I'm I'm sorry that to say that we're running out of time, Doug. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, very interesting people. If they want to learn more about this rapid test, they can go to rapid org was that correct?
0: That's correct rapidtest.org and you'll it's see a
1: test or test singular or plural.
0: It is plural
1: rapidtests.org okay and they can find out about it. Well look, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your coming on and putting this into perspective and let's hope that we can get our country back moving working and doing all of our normal activities very very soon. Um, Doug, thank you again for being with us today. Folks, you've been listening to Of Consuming Interest. My guest has been Doug Badger. He's a visiting fellow with the Domestic Policy Studies with the Heritage Foundation. And I'm Shirley Rooker. You can reach me at Shirley at callforaction.org. Let me hear about your consumer complaints or problems. We're glad you were with us today. And let's all go out and hopefully stay safe and healthy. Again, Shirley Rooker for Call for Action and here on the Federal News Network.
0: Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP.